The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of the Seat at the Table special series, I am joined today by not one, but two special guests. And they are actually return visitors to the Seat at the Table series, Eric and Matt from the Ranking 76 podcast. Eric and Matt, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank hey, you for hey, having hey. us back. So glad to have y'all. As always, I try and find some characters for y'all because <laughs> on your podcast, you definitely cover some interesting characters and there are quite a few in the cabinet series. So I always like to have y'all on for those extra special characters. Last time we talked about <laughs> Timothy Pickering and we've got another one lined up. But before we get started, I want to give y'all a chance to share with the audience a little bit about your podcast and where they can find you. Oh, so yeah, we are ranking 76, the American West. We review and rank the heroes and villains of the American West and then draft them onto our own individual teams. And at the end, we're going to do a tournament. If you're familiar with the Rexy, uh, Rex Factor formula, Rexy pods that are ever growing family, that's what we're a part of. And right now, we just got done finishing recording on Seth Bullock and Al Swearingen. Uh, actually, this is going to be dropping a bit in the future, isn't it? Um, so (laughs) maybe we'll, maybe I'll just maybe drop that last little bit there, but, (laughs) uh, but yeah, um, and that, yeah, we review and write the heroes and uh, yeah, just screwed that last part. I'm sorry. I crew, I killed the, I killed it. I got so excited. I didn't need to prep for an episode that I just, I killed it. (laughs) You killed it. (laughs) Well, and I just, I love your podcast because, you know, there is this, mystique to the American West. And there is this idea of the heroes and villains. And I just love how y'all break down their stories and you reveal, yes, there were some really awful characters, really awful individuals there. But then you also get to some stories of humanity and some of the folks that are lesser known. And I just, I love like with presidencies, we try and look at folks that are not in the standard narrative, but were there and contributed, and it becomes just such a richer history. So mm-hmm. I greatly appreciate that about Ranking 76. Well, thank you. It's very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> and so as usual, I will be sharing information on my social media about Ranking 76 around the release of this episode. I'll also have information on the website, which is presidenciespodcast.com. So be on the lookout for that. But in the meantime, let's get to the character we're going to be talking about today. So today we are going to be discussing John Armstrong Jr. Mm. So (laughs) before we dive in, have y'all heard of John Armstrong? I, I know, yeah, I know very little. I know if you listen to our show by chance, um, I'm obligated to not like this man, but I don't don't entirely know why. Uh, I know why, but I can't. We'll we'll, we'll go into it. 
but <laughs> Tecumseh well, for life. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Tecumseh for life. <laughs> well, let's dive in and start talking about John Armstrong Jr. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. So... The junior, of course, that gives you a clue as to his father's name. He was John Sr. John Armstrong Jr. was the second son of John Sr. and Rebecca Lyon Armstrong. He was born on November 25th, 1758. The Armstrongs, and in particular John Sr., was of Scots-Irish descent. And John Sr. was actually an immigrant to the U.S. He had been born in Ireland in 1717. And it's noted that the family seems to have been rather well-to-do. John Sr. got his start in life as a surveyor, and you know we've seen other figures in this point in American history. George Washington got his start as a surveyor, so that was kind of a, a good way to start making your way in the world. Land treasure hunting. Everyone <laughs> wanted to speculate because they all thought there was so much money in it, and there wasn't. For 50 years. <laughs> yes. Yes. And they just kept on buying land. And spoiler <laughs> alert, that's going to come up in this episode as well. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> how. Like father, <laughs> like son. But <laughs> so John and Rebecca were married in 1739. In 1746, they immigrated to the colony of Pennsylvania with their family and established themselves, quote, on the west side of the Susquehanna River. So John Sr. actually laid out the town of Carlisle, which would become their home, and he quickly became a leader in the community, so much so that he was elected to the provincial legislature in 1749, and they actually had their first child, a son named James, that year. But with growing tensions between Great Britain and France culminating in the Seven Years' War, or as it's known typically in the United States as the French and Indian War, Armstrong's family being on what was then the British colonial frontier, was heavily impacted by the conflict. John Sr. served as a colonel in the Pennsylvania militia and saw his share of action, including a raid into native lands in September 1756, in response to a native forces raid on a British settlement that resulted in the death of his brother. So this mm. was a very personal conflict for him and i would even say i'm not entirely sure how many details are on that battle uh the french and indian war could be very close contact especially when you're talking about native fighting this is not it is not uh lining up uh across the battlefield it is tree to tree fist fight like it's fight it's brutal dirty so i i can only imagine how old was his brother i actually i don't know i don't have that in my notes I'm but just wondering I know, if he was like a younger brother, because then that would hit even like uh, even worse, oh, yeah. you know, like if it was like a, a child. Are you oh, starting yeah. to, are you going to start his like villain arc right here? Like, this is where <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it's interesting. And part of the reason why I want to talk about his father's military service is because, you know, 
again, spoiler alert, John Armstrong would go on to become Secretary of War. And so this idea of military service kind of carries forward. And you have to wonder if there was that influence from his father and what he took from that. Mm. And John Sr. was very much lauded as a hero in the colonies. He was given medals. And in 1775, the Penn family gave him, quote, a valuable land grant in western Pennsylvania. So here we go with the land. Yeah, doing well. And so the oldest son, James, so John Jr.'s brother, was enrolled at the Academy of Pennsylvania and in 1769 became one of the first graduates of the College of Philadelphia's School of Medicine. And this is, of course, now the University of Pennsylvania. So again, like we can infer from some of this that they were a well-to-do family. But he has a medical background? So his brother. Brother, okay. Although a medical background does not preclude somebody from becoming Secretary of War, as we learned about in the <laughs> William Eustace episode. <laughs> I was about to say, there's two of them. Like, that's so, <laughs> that's a random, like, little connection. <laughs> But John Jr., he began his education with being enrolled in a school in Carlisle. He thrived in the educational experience and would look back on this time in his life rather fondly. He was enrolled in a more advanced school at the age of 13. And then at the age of 16, he was enrolled in the College of New Jersey, which is now known as Princeton University. We've encountered some other cabinet members, including James Madison, who were Princeton alums as well. But John, he actually, so he entered his studies there as a sophomore, but as he was taking this next step in his education, the colony of Pennsylvania, along with the other colonies on the eastern seaboard of North America, were taking their own steps towards independence. And soon after Armstrong began his studies at Princeton, the colonies declared their independence from Great Britain, And he, along with other members of his family, would have to make some choices on how to respond to this. John Sr. was actually recommended by General George Washington himself. They'd actually served together during the Seven Years' War. And so he recommended that John Sr. be commissioned as a brigadier general. And before long, John Sr. was sent to command in the South. Meanwhile, that oldest son, his brother James, the one who went through medical school, entered service as a doctor. John Jr., meanwhile, decided to forego his college studies in order to serve in a militia that was sent to New Brunswick in August 1776. But though this company was soon ordered back to Princeton, and so this was part of that Canadian invasion that never really got off the ground, they were <coughs> sent back. But John Jr. decided... What's that? Uh, the Canadians were too nice to start a conflict, you know. Hey, hey, hey we don't want any conflict here. <laughs> oh, we, we, we can't. We can't, really? Okay. You just stay there. It's fine. <laughs> this is going to Tim Hortons, horses. eh? <laughs> Have your Tim Hortons. It's fine. <laughs> but even though they, you know, soon after returned to Princeton, John Jr. decided, you know, That whole college thing, that's not really for me. So he did not actually graduate from the College of New Jersey. Instead, he and a friend decided to go to New York and volunteered for a regiment. 
Before long, John Jr. was invited to join General Hugh Mercer's staff as an aide at the rank of Brigade Major. As Armstrong remarked of Mercer later, quote, He found me friendless in a camp, a boy in years, and exposed to the influence of licentious example. He received me in his military family and elevated me at once to a station perhaps higher than I deserved. And so this experience would start him on a path of military service. It would, it would, you know, it would be an influence and we'll see as we go along, he keeps on going up the ranks, but because he was under Mercer's command, this meant that John Jr. was present for the battles of Trenton and Princeton. But Mm. after Mercer's death in the latter battle, John Jr. and the rest of Mercer's command were integrated into the force under General Arthur St. Clair. And oh, yeah, that St. Clair. <laughs> well, I'm sure he was great for another couple for a while. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We haven't gotten to how and regular listeners of the podcast, and especially those who have listened to the Washington series, you know, St. Clair becomes rather infamous for a battle during the Washington presidency that's pretty well known as St. Clair's defeat, if that gives you any yeah. clue as to how it went. <laughs> and Armstrong learned from this man, so this is... <laughs> well, and actually, he didn't. Oh, okay. St. Clair already had his staff in place, and so young Armstrong was able to skip out of that. He Dodged the bullet. had to figure out what to do next. And luckily, his father, that brigadier general, arrived at the camp and they talked, you know, what what do we need to do now since you can't be on his staff? And his father wrote a letter of introduction for his son to Major General Horatio Gates. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Dodged a bullet and got hit by a cannonball. All right. <laughs> It's like, you know, where's James Wilkinson coming in in this? We need the most infamous generals involved in his young career. (laughs) So wrote this letter of introduction to Gates. And a few days later, John Jr. was off to join the Northern Army. And Gates readily agreed to take John Jr. onto his staff as an aide-de-camp at the rank of major. And he would play a prominent role in Armstrong's life. So at this point, Armstrong is a major. Yes. Okay. That's pretty interesting for with no schooling. With view. no schooling, yes. no previous military experience. It helps that your father is a brigadier general who right. knows George Washington. Uh, <laughs> right. I say, you have how much money? Okay, you're a major. You're yeah. a major. <laughs> It's just yeah, exactly. It's just interesting to me when you learn about like uh, as the army, you know, is shaping up and everything. It's just like you're a general, you're a major, you're a general. Oh, you're a private now. You're a general. Uh, you are, go lead these people. It's so in- so weird. I especially like how even when like they're raising armies, that's when people seem to like jump rank the most. It seems like that if you recruit like 10 people, oh man, lieutenant already, like you you already jump up four levels that you're not qualified for because you just told, ask people to, to fight. Like, it's just kind of funny. 
or if you have money, it turns out. That was the incentive, oh, yeah. you know, get to get, get to your friends to agree and jump a couple of ranks. That's how it works, you know? <laughs> well, and it's funny, I was actually working earlier today on another episode of the Madison series and talking about the War of 1812. And even then, it's like the same thing. It's, oh, well, you're so-and-so. Okay, well, you can be a general. <laughs> oh, you raised five people in a squadron. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> here you go, Lieutenant. <laughs> Your dad was who? Oh, yeah, you definitely can leave them too. You're good to yeah. go. Let's give him a whole freaking platoon, you know? Would you like to be a major or a colonel? Actually, we'll just we'll make you both. Whatever. We don't care. <laughs> how, how many commissions do you want? And oh, by the way, do you want to be a territorial governor as well? we just talked about in one of our recent episodes we just talked about seth bullock who is 20 years old just goes into montana and they're like hey you want to run for territorial senator (laughs) okay (laughs) he loses but four years later he's elected so like it's not like he had to wait a whole lot like and this is about a hundred years actually over a hundred years after that so like never changes this isn't as far in the past as we <laughs> think. <Right. laughs> but yes, yeah, so we've got Armstrong in this position. He's now in the military family of Horatio Gates. And while while it's beyond the scope of this episode to go into too much detail about Gates, we should note that Gates was quite an intriguer. And as we go along, we may want to consider just how much this influenced Armstrong's future career. So the Northern Army was charged with dealing with the British forces under Lieutenant General John Burgoyne, who had invaded down Lake Champlain, and seemingly they were poised to march on Albany, though their advance was soon halted near Bennington, Vermont. And of course, with the Battle of Saratoga on October 7, 1777, also referred to as the Battle of Bemis Heights, Gates and his force were able to decisively end the threat posed by Burgoyne, culminating in the surrender of his entire army to Gates on October 17th. So this is one of those pivotal points in the American Revolution. And this was really Gates's claim to fame, and even to the point that there was talk of replacing Washington with Gates. Yeah, it turns out it was just Gates, like, going around saying it. Like, Gates is Washington. <laughs> Have you heard about this guy named Gates? He's great. <laughs> Pretty boy Gates. Like a fake <laughs> and while Gates would shift from one position to the other after this, ultimately to end up back in charge of the Northern Army, Armstrong would spend some time after the Battle of Saratoga recovering from a prolonged illness. But finally, in spring 1778, he was able to make his way back to Gates' headquarters at that point in Boston. And while on the way, he met a Polish officer who was serving in the Continental Army named Thaddeus Kosciuszko. The two men became friends, and Armstrong would actually later name a son after Kosciuszko. Dang. So they were real close. Real, real close. They were real close. And, And we'll see this as we go along. Armstrong really... He meets some rather prominent folks. You know, you you've got Kosciuszko around, you've got Lafayette around. It's just it's really fascinating. It also helps that you're the son of a brigadier general who's <laughs> yeah. friends with George Washington. Yeah. Land given to them by the Penn family. <laughs> yeah, land given to them by the Penn family. These things help. 
I know some people. I know people. So as Armstrong continued in his military career, John Sr. became increasingly concerned about his son's health and actually urged him to leave the Army. John Jr. refused, and in the fall of 1779, he got Gates's permission to join in an expedition against the British in Maine. Nothing ultimately came of this expedition, and soon enough, Armstrong was back at Gates's headquarters. But John Jr. is determined, I'm going to make something of myself militarily. You said it was a prolonged illness. Uh, does it ever say like what the illness was, or it was just kind of uh, one of those, he's just always sick? He has points in his life that he just, he starts to fall ill and will have like periods of illness. And we'll actually see this as we go along. And especially like at one point, he's going to serve in France on a diplomatic mission. And again, like this period of prolonged illness. And so it's just something that kind of sticks with him throughout his life. Mm. And I never really saw anything that and of course, it's it's hard to diagnose right. from the past, right? But you know, it's it's really, and it almost makes me think of James Madison again, somebody mm-hmm. who was frequently ill. But whereas Madison was like, you know, uh, this military thing is not for me. I'm not going to travel. It seems like Armstrong, he wasn't as extreme as that, or he just. He was determined. He's like, I'm Trying not going to prove this a point. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I almost kind of wonder too. Just going like you hear so many people. I we know who's sickly because they write it down. Where I wonder if everyone was just at some. Most people were just kind of somewhat achy or like not sick of something all the time. But I wonder if they just didn't write it down. So like when somebody does write down any type of human, not failure, but at the time it would have been looked like of weakness. I wonder if that's the outlier and that's why that gets transported. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we, we don't know. We know that conditions at the time, you know, Mm -hmm. right. It wasn't nearly as sanitary. There were more diseases going around. Medicine was very primitive. So it could have been that this was more prevalent. And and like you said, Eric, and, and also thinking of all the people that we don't know about because they either didn't write things down or they couldn't, they could have, you know, not been able to write. Right. So it is interesting, but yeah, you definitely get from Armstrong throughout his life. He just has these periods of illness. And so this was one of them. And to the point that his father was actually telling him, let's go ahead and get you out of the army. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to power through. That makes me think it's got to be, it was got to be, it it had to have at least looked a little serious for, I mean, his own father who obviously wants him to succeed to be like, son, I think it's time to call it up. Yeah. Yeah. But he keeps going. He's back at Gates's headquarters, but just as Gates languished in inactivity, so too did his young aide and Gates returned to his plantation while Armstrong returned back home to Carlisle. But finally things seemed to be looking up as on July 13th, 1780, Gates was appointed as the commander of the Southern Department. Armstrong, appointed as a brevet lieutenant colonel, joined the commander as they headed south. Though Gates arrived at his new command, Armstrong developed a fever while en route and Mm -hmm. had to stop in Richmond, Virginia to recover, which means that he was not around for what would become one of the 
worst points of Gates's career <laughs> because this new command would quickly destroy Gates's reputation with the disastrous Battle of Camden on August 15th and 16th, and the general was quickly replaced by Major General Nathaniel Green. From his sickbed in Richmond, Armstrong did what he could to defend Gates in his correspondence and in talking with visitors. Armstrong was finally able to return home to Carlisle to complete his recovery, and in April 1781, he accompanied Gates to Philadelphia to request from the Confederation Congress, quote, an inquiry into Gates's conduct during the last campaign. Congress was initially reluctant to take action, but they finally relented the next year, and in August 1782, the inquiry concluded that no charges of misconduct against Gates were justified in the matter. So he is definitely hitching his wagon to Gates. He's sticking by him, even though he's being roundly criticized and ridiculed. So for both Gates and Armstrong, at this point, the opportunities to add to their military reputation were dwindling. And with the defeat of British General Cornwallis on October 19, 1791 at Yorktown, the war began to wind down. In that token, Congress announced in August 1782, quote, a plan of voluntary retirement of officers to begin on January 1, 1783. However, there was a bit of a problem. The soldiers of the Continental Army were still owed back pay. And if they were going to resume their civilian lives, They needed something to get back on their feet. You know, they had been at war for all this time. They needed something to be able to go home and get their lives back in order. Further, though Congress had promised in 1780 to give officers, quote unquote, half pay for life at the end of the war, by the time 1782 rolled around, they were rethinking that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and... uh... Yeah. Do, do you have that in writing? Let me see the writing. Let me yeah. see our signatures. That that doesn't sound like something we would say. <laughs> Who would be silly enough to do that? Even if we might have said it, we it, it's real expensive, guys. I don't know if you understand how expensive that's going to seem. Yeah, we just spent how much money on war, but... It's like, I'm going to be honest. I didn't think a lot of you were coming back, so we got to, <laughs> like... Uh, we didn't think we were going to do that well. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we thought we thought the British were going to win, so we didn't think we really had to worry that much about it. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, so, as you can imagine... The Continental Army was not too pleased. (laughs) And a group of 12 to 14 officers met on March 9th in Gates' headquarters at the Army camp at Newburgh, New York, to discuss the situation. And Armstrong was charged with writing what came to be known as the first Newburgh Address, which was circulated around the camp the next day. As described by Skeen in his description of this address, quote, written in the crisp, vigorous style that has been frequently acclaimed, Its contents have been just as frequently condemned. The primary purpose of the first address was to call for a stronger statement to Congress, and secondly, to menace Congress. The most seditious passage warned that if Congress failed to do justice, the army has its alternative, namely, refuse to lay down its arms and, courting the direction of your illustrious leader, you will retire to some yet unsettled country, smile in your turn, 
and mock when there, i.e., Congress's fear cometh on. So, for people who are vague in letters, that is like punching them in the face with what the what, what the threat is. It's basically saying, you realize that we're an army. Yeah. <laughs> we're trained in combat. And we can march to Congress and wow. have a few words. That is blunt. Yeah. This is... <laughs> words. <laughs> words. <laughs> you see um, this bloody bayonet? <laughs> yeah. Still Here's blood. the words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is basically saying we are willing to go as far as a coup d'etat and take the government. And then, so one of the things you said was they, they owed him back pay. Was there ever a, a number put on that? Was it months of pay or? Year and a half. Oh, a year, a year and a half. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd be a little, I'd be a little upset. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, yeah. how are you supposed to go well, over with nothing? They were. Yeah, and so you know, here is Armstrong drafting this address. As the address was written anonymously, no one knew of Armstrong's involvement until many decades later. In fact. General Washington, who opposed the address, thought that it had been, quote, written in Philadelphia and carried in the camp. Hmm. However, a second address was posted on March 12th, and so he realized that it was coming from a source, quote, in or near camp. The second address, also written by Armstrong, was received as poorly as the first, and as Washington had already issued a call for a regular meeting, quote, to hear the report of the Committee of the Army to Congress on March 15th, Gates and the Newburgh conspirators opted to wait to see what came out of that meeting. When the meeting with General Gates presiding convened, Washington, quote, delivered a carefully prepared and eloquent speech to the assembled officers. But when he pulled out a letter that he wanted to read to everyone, he stopped to reach for his spectacles and remarked, quote, that he had grown gray in their service and now found himself growing blind. So he was really tugging at the heartstrings of the soldiers involved and they melted. They are like, if Washington's saying this is a bad idea, that we should be loyal to Congress, that we should just trust that they're going to figure things out, we need to give this up. Mm -hmm. And so that was quickly the end of the Newburgh conspiracy and any other grumbling in the camp. Boy, that's, that's, I, I've heard like of the officers like conspiring together. I didn't read, I never put the name to it. And for whatever reason, I also never drew gates towards it either, but that, that is such an awesome moment in American history that yeah. everyone doesn't, not everyone seems to appreciate because Washington crying or not crying, but showing weakness was a big deal. And it, yeah. it, he played that audience perfectly. Yeah. I don't know if you're going to get to it later, but how did they end up? You said decades later, they found out it was Armstrong that wrote those letters. Like, did he finally, did he admit to it or like, how, what was the, or are we getting to that later? We will get to that. Oh, okay. But one thing to note here, and, and Matt, you get to an interesting point because 
There was no regret on Armstrong's part for his involvement in the Newberg conspiracy. Was he that guy in the background as Washington was talking, just shaking his head? No. <laughs> I just know. You believe this like, guy? No way. No. The guys that are all crying and stuff? Nope. I like the idea of Washington reading his letter, and I have grown old and blind in my service. And just in the background, boom! <laughs> 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 Although I wouldn't put it past Armstrong, it's interesting because Washington, towards the end of his presidency, actually learned that Armstrong was the author of the addresses. And hmm. he wrote them that, quote, I've since had sufficient reason for believing that the object of the author was just, honorable, and friendly to the country, though the means suggested by him were certainly liable to much misunderstanding and abuse. So Washington saying, you know, the ends don't justify the means. Your means mm -hmm. were very wrong. I'm going to go ahead and give you the benefit of the doubt. You were really thinking of the soldiers. You were thinking they were in a, a tough place. And, you know, your intentions were good, but just don't do a armed coup d'etat against <laughs> the government. Please, please. Now, do you believe that, though? Because I guess, like, do you be, think he's more title jumping or position jumping? Or did he actually care that they they soldiers hadn't get, gotten paid? I think let's go along and we'll see <laughs> as we as we learn more about Armstrong. I think but I think that's something that we should come back to towards the end when we're reviewing whether this was really an honorable intent or something, something else. else. <laughs> I'm just going to put me as a jerk. <laughs> and so the resolution of the Newburgh conspiracy would prove to be Armstrong's ignoble end of his military career. So now mm. he's out. And as his biographer Skeen wrote, quote, Armstrong returned to private life after more than seven years of army life, unmarked by promotion and little distinguished by military glory. So, even though he had been in the army for a while and he had, he had done fairly well in terms of his ranking, he never really proved himself. He never really got to that, mm -hmm. those upper levels of the army. Armstrong, you know, despite this, despite, you know, coming out and not really having, not really being able to say, Hey, I was the hero of the battle of whatever. He still landed a good position after his discharge as the Secretary of the Pennsylvania Supreme Executive Council. Again, it helps to have a father who was a Brigadier General and friends with George Washington. <laughs> it's always about who you know, not what you know, right? <laughs> exactly. So unlike the folks who were still waiting for their year and a half of back pay, <laughs> he was able you to go what? into this new cushy position. <laughs> I do like that. <laughs> guys, we should coo. Sir, we have a position for you. Okay, bye. See you guys. Take care. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Weird. My sign-on bonus was half your guys' paychecks. I don't know. Like, I don't Sorry. Know. <laughs> yeah. My paycheck cashed. I have no issues. <laughs> You're, yours is in the mail. I know it's in the mail. Just keep watching. Armstrong did have some trepidation about taking this post, however, because he was still considering his path in life. Skeen notes that some of his uncertainty was due to his, quote, indolent habits and his conscious desire for a life of ease. And did I mention that this is his own biographer? 
Did you just call him lazy? Yes. Is that one I just picked out of there? <laughs> yes. He's basically <laughs> saying that he has a propensity towards laziness. <laughs> he also notes that Armstrong's, quote, lackadaisical attitude and his languid nature was a source of comment by many of his contemporaries. Still, despite so everyone the... Knew. Everyone knew he was lazy. (laughs) Everyone knew he really couldn't be counted on to. But he did. It seems like he did throw himself into the role. And this is a time of fractured politics for Pennsylvania, but it doesn't seem like he really got burned by that. He was able to just do the job and seems like folks thought that he did it rather well. He also got involved in the Wyoming controversy that's also been dubbed the Third Pennamite War, which was a conflict between settlers from Connecticut and Pennsylvania over disputed land claims in the Wyoming Valley, which is an area claimed by both states at the time. And so this comes from like the original charters of what became the states. They weren't always so... Well, this land is Pennsylvania's, this land is Connecticut's. Sometimes they just draft these charters, and even though something was already claimed in the Charter of Pennsylvania, they'd also say in the Connecticut Charter, oh, well, you know, that land, nobody's got it right. We're not going to look at these other charters. You know, we currently live in Connecticut, and I can tell you, we're complete. there is... Uh, New York blocking anywhere between Connecticut and Pennsylvania. So for Connecticut to claim land anywhere outside is a bold strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Not neighboring at all. (laughs) There's no river. There's no, it's just New York, then Pennsylvania. So I don't know what they were trying to claim. (laughs) And I remember from the map, like it was like this strip of land that just went across, you know, directly west of Connecticut. And it's interesting because, you know, at this time, and we see this like even into the Washington presidency and beyond these conflicting land claims, because both states were like, oh, well, we'll grant land charters and folks can claim land on this land. And then they get there and they're like, oh, what are you doing here? This is, this is our land. No, no. Pennsylvania said this was our land. Well, Connecticut said this was our land. Yeah. Lots of this. And it ended up in this armed conflict. I'm convinced. If you look at every like lawsuit in the history of the United States, you want to comb through that. I would bet a majority of them are land claim like suits. There is an unbelievable amount, especially as you head out west towards the, in the next century. Ridiculous. And it's already starting. Good <laughs> grief. Oh, Yes. Armstrong's father, as well as friends, wrote of their concern over his involvement with the matter, but Armstrong threw himself in supporting the Penamites, which was the name that was given to the Pennsylvania settlers. And at this point, they were being threatened by the Connecticut folks, and with attacks on the Penamites ramping up in 1784, Armstrong was named by the State Executive Council as a, quote, adjutant general with the rank of brigadier general of the Pennsylvania State Militia on October 5th and ordered to gather a force to march into the Wyoming Valley. He was ultimately only able to put together a force of 40 folks, but still, he took those 40 folks and marched on in October 17th and, quote, arrested about 30 Connecticut men. 
This action did not stop the conflict, however, and as noted by Skeen, quote, the matter of private rights to the soil lingered in controversy for another 20 years, though the violence did subside. So, Eric, to your point, you know, this continues on for decades after, but at least it moves more into the legal realm and less of the, we're going to shoot you and kill you. Right. (laughs) No, they'll just head out west and then continue the the shooting. (laughs) Or especially, I also... Basically, like it gets so money not to like go on land claims because nobody's tuning in for land claims. (laughs) It's just with the amount of territory that was changing hand between uh, the Spanish and France and the United States and NATO, like anyone could have just said, "Yeah, I bought this land from this guy," and then forge a document, James Bowie, and then trade it (laughs) off to someone and make vast amounts of money. And either get caught or get away with it scot free. Like it's unbelievable how many scams there are. The land speculation market, and it's just, it's, and we saw this in, you know, the Jefferson and Madison presidencies when we were talking about the Yazoo land claims in the Southeast, you know, it, there was so much of this going on Mm -hmm. and so much wealth involved and lost in this. Mm. And so I, I mentioned that he had been named with the rank of Brigadier General. Though Armstrong would not be part of the ultimate resolution to this, he did take from this experience one thing, again from Skeen, quote, for the remainder of his life, he preferred to be addressed by the title of general. Okay. So he's like, I don't care that this was a thing and I only led 40 men. Call me general. (laughs) To be fair, if I had a chance to be called general, I'd I'd do it. Yeah. It's fair claim. And we'll see this trend in Armstrong as we go along. (laughs) So having John Jr. at the center of Philadelphia society and culture concerned his father, and John Sr. wrote to his son urging him to become more involved in religious life. Jr., of course, as many young men have done in the past, did not listen because he was too busy climbing the political ladder. Armstrong was chosen as a delegate to the Confederation Congress in March 1787 and assumed his seat in mid-April. Now, if that year 1787 is sounding familiar, that is, of course, the year of the Constitutional Convention. So service in the Continental Congress was really at a low ebb at this point. It, It was pretty well recognized that something was about to change. They didn't know exactly how, but, you know, this Congress idea, the Confederation, was fading. And indeed, despite the Congress meeting in Philadelphia, Armstrong, when he assumed his seat as a representative from Pennsylvania, was the only representative from Pennsylvania present at the Congress in Philadelphia. Mm. That's how much people were like, we don't care about Congress anymore. (laughs) All right. Oh, so he didn't go to the new, he didn't go up to the constitutional convention he actually showed up to congress and like i'm a big oh no (laughs) and he was the only one who showed up from pennsylvania 
That is so much worse. I was thinking he was the only one in the Constitution. I was like, wait, wasn't Ben? I was going and saying, no, the one they're abandoning. And he's like, hey, guys. (laughs) I'm here. Is anybody here? (laughs) Where is everybody? The room is empty. Am I the king of America? (laughs) Is this the janitor sweeping? What do do you want? Uh Can I help you? (laughs) Is this Congress? Yeah. <laughs> where where should I sit? Take your pick. <laughs> so it's an empty room. <laughs> and it actually wasn't until July 4th, 1787, that there was actually a quorum present for business to actually take place in Congress. There was at least one important bit of business that happened in this session, namely the passage of the Ordinance of 1787, which established the Northwest Territory. Armstrong, on October 16th, was appointed as one of the three judges of this new territory. But after considering the appointment for a few months, he ultimately resigned on January 21st, 1788, without really taking it up. Armstrong wasn't ready to leave the center of culture just yet, especially not for the mere salary of $800 per year. Mm, Pittance. Pittance. (laughs) And especially to have to go to this frontier. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, he, 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 you picture Armstrong as someone who would appreciate glamping. Yeah. <laughs> if he even went that far. Well, when your own biographer calls you lazy, yes, I can, yeah. I can see that. Armstrong was really banking on this, you know, by this point they were starting to hear the details of this new constitution they knew a new government was coming and so he was starting to bank on that okay i'm going to shift gears there are going to be new opportunities in this new federal government also he had some personal affairs to take care of Skeen postulates that armstrong had probably known alita livingston for a few years due to her and her sister's frequent journeys to philadelphia from their home in new york And yes, Alita was one of those Livingstons. So she had two, you know, two of her brothers were rather prominent figures in American history. Chancellor Robert R. Livingston, who was the man who would swear Washington in as president in the first inauguration in 1789. And Edward Livingston, who is a rather notorious figure in his own right and who will also get an episode of this special series sometime along the line. Alita had been born on December 24, 1761. She was the 10th of 11 children, and only Edward Livingston, who we just mentioned, he was her younger brother, so he was the only one that was younger than her. As late as May 1788, Armstrong was denying any romantic intentions towards Alita Livingston, claiming that, quote, I'm too poor to marry a woman without some fortune, and too proud to carry any woman that I know who possesses one. Still, a month and a half later, he was Alita's guest at the Livingston Estate, Claremont. As described by Skeen, quote, she was an attractive, cultivated, gentle, and amiable young lady, to say nothing of the share of the Livingston Beekman lands that would fall due to her. Yet she had reached her 26th year without marrying. This was no doubt primarily due to her relative isolation at Claremont and a shortage of young men suitable to marry a Livingston. So, Hmm. you know, we thought that Armstrong was up in the elites. 
the Livingstons are on a whole new level. That is interesting because I kind of he is just like upper middle class and he's thinking he doesn't have a, the wealth to marry her. So like I was kind of puzzled by that. But yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Huh. Like, compared to her wealth, his looks piddly. Like a pittance. <laughs> yeah, like a pittance. <laughs> but still, over the next few months, they exchanged letters, increasingly writing of their affection for one another. And finally, on January 19th, 1789, they married at Claremont. Though Skeen notes the financial gain to Armstrong from this union, he does postulate that, quote, this was a love match. Oh, well. I mean, the money's good as well, but (laughs) it's nice that they had some affection, too. (laughs) And just as his marital ties would draw him closer to New York, so, too, was this new government under the Constitution assembling in New York City. Armstrong was not immediately successful in finding a position in the new government, so he used his time to work within the Livingston family to secure Alita's portion of the estate and to have it transferred to his name. By June 1790, he was in possession of 25,000 acres in the Hudson River Valley. I'm just sensing like one of those weird movies where a guy just moves into a lady's house and like slowly steals everything. And they're like, no, he loves me. And then, like, poisons her. <laughs> Please don't tell me you poisoned her. Well, funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> well, never proven. No, right? <laughs> it does say mysterious death. <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting. So, at this time, that wasn't necessarily considered, you know, for things to be transferred over to the husband. It right. wasn't seen as untoward. It was just, it was expected that as the head of the household, he would control it. But no, she she didn't have a, a mysterious <laughs> disappearance or illness. <laughs> she actually had her first child, born in mid-May 1790 at Claremont. And that same month, Armstrong bought a 400-acre farm in Dutchess County and soon moved his family there. As noted by Skeen, quote, their first farm was small and distinctly inferior to what Alita was accustomed to and he soon drew up plans for a roomier dwelling. Unfortunately, as they planned to grow their estate, ill health afflicted both John and Alita in the early years of their marriage, including but not limited to stomach pains and a violent fever described as the ague. So, so attempted poisoning is what, is that what you're really saying. And, and they may have attempted to poison one another. <laughs> why, why are you ill? No, why are you ill? <laughs> You, we bought some tea. You you drink it first. Okay, okay, uh, okay. I'm gonna put your tea right there. Oh, what's that? Let's do a switcheroo. Yeah. I can't remember which apple was poisoned. I guess we gotta eat the same one. So fun times in the Armstrong house. And so you know, at this time, he was struggling to meet his his growing family's financial obligations. He was leasing some lands, mortgaging, selling some of the considerable acreage in their possession. But finally, though, at the end of 1793, he and his family were able to move into a home dubbed the Meadows. And Armstrong, who, quote, always had a particular fondness for farming, now applied his talents to the study of agriculture. But before long, Armstrong was planning another larger house, quote, on land he purchased south of him adjoining 
the small flour and sawmill on the Sawkill Creek, a small meandering stream that flowed into the Hudson. Now, Armstrong actually designed this new house himself, but it's interesting. Like, they're just constantly moving from one house into a larger house. He just can't help himself, can he? Like, no. (laughs) Well, he did say she was uh, accustomed to uh, a certain way. Yeah, but yes. he was probably pointing at himself. Yeah, she is completely accustomed <laughs> to it. And like, <laughs> no, no, no. This house is not good enough for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm going to add an additional study for myself. And, oh, th- shouldn't we have an exercise room for me? For me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you really want that, don't you? <laughs> You said he was farming. That is the only income? Because I, okay, that's it. And land speculation. So, you know, mortgaging, leasing out lands, selling. So, <laughs> land speculation and farming. Yes. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> and while they worked on that house, after Armstrong gave up the meadows to Alita's brother, Chancellor Livingston, in 1795, the family, quote, lived in a barn that had been converted to their use. So, had a, had a little downturn. Let's go from this nice house to the barn. I'm going to bring you somewhere nice, honey. Here it is. Uh, this is the barn. Why are nice we It's a big sliding door. You got to... I would what? love to be in the carriage ride and if it was like a big surprise for her. Like, honey, I, I bought you another house. You're going to love it. You just they're just coming over like the hill and you just see the roof and it's huge and she's like, This is it and then it's all like just tattered and tore up. And you just you picture her just standing there blank faced. This is a joke, right? Right? You're just joking, right? You go from a place called the Meadows, which I can only imagine is probably pretty cool, to a freaking barn? To the barn. Yeah. <laughs> Well, things are yeah. going well. <laughs> things, are going, things are going well. They're keeping things interesting on the home front. But even though he was out of politics at this point, Armstrong was developing his political ideology and his leanings at the time in opposition to his Livingston in-laws actually lay with the Federalists. And President Washington offered him the position of supervisor of the Port of New York in 1793. Hmm. Now, while Armstrong did entertain the idea, he ultimately declined the offer because it meant that he would have to move his family to New York City. For a job? What? (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) He's like, I I kind of have a sweet deal going in the Hudson Valley, so I'm just going to stay here. Honey, I, I was promised a really high-paying job by the President of the United States, but I just love this barn too much to move. Right. He also quipped to Gates because he was still – he maintained a correspondence with Horatio Gates throughout his life. And so he quipped to Gates in a letter about the offer that, quote, There is no great glory in boring some puncheons or gauging stills. It but requires very cheap, that is, very common qualities and qualifications, too, to discharge these trusts. So basically, he saw this post as beneath him, and he might actually have to do something. (sighs) 
I'm, I would love to hear him tell his wife that. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to work. <laughs> I don't want to He's do sleeping that. next to the cow tonight. <laughs> now, sadly, Armstrong did suffer a personal loss in March 1795 with the death of his father, John Sr. But this death also brought another source of potential liquid capital for him to pay off his debts and support his family as his father left his sons, quote, a modest tract of Western lands. And it wasn't long before Armstrong looked to selling some of these Western lands. He wrote to Horatio Gates that he wished to use the proceeds from the sales, quote, so that I might pursue some of my literary projects and attend a little more to public business and public objects. In November 1797, his mother Rebecca passed away, and her property was also divided up between the children. At some point in 1797 or 1798, the family's new estate, which was called Mill Hill, was completed, and the family moved in. A visitor described it as, quote, not showy, but comfortable. And it was at this country estate where he really refined his political ideology. As noted by Skeen, quote, in his basic outlook, he was and always remained aristocratic. In his early years, he was pessimistic about the prospects for the success of Republican government, but in time, he became more tolerant of the foibles of the masses and even stood eventually as a strong advocate of republicanism. And I mentioned earlier that he initially leaned more towards the Federalist, but increasingly as time went on and as Adams took over from Washington, Armstrong started moving closer to the Democratic Republicans, so Jefferson and Madison. And ultimately, he would make his big break with the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798. Armstrong actually took up his pen and wrote an anonymous pamphlet in the latter part of that year denouncing the measures, describing the Alien Acts as, quote, obnoxious to a generous and free people, and the Sedition Act as, quote, converting freemen into slaves. So at this point, and, and we see this growing trend towards the Democratic Republicans and the strength of that party, and Armstrong's starting to ride that wave. And mm -hmm. he actually makes his return to politics on November 6, 1800, when a close associate, who was another former Federalist turned Democratic Republican, someone that will also ride this rising political force of nature, and this is somebody called DeWitt Clinton, arranged for Armstrong to be elected as U.S. Senator by the New York State Legislature. So DeWitt Clinton was responsible for Armstrong being elected to the U.S. Senate. And in January 1801, Armstrong assumed his seat in the nation's new capital of Washington, D.C., which was still rather of a barren wilderness rather than a world-class city. So any predictions on how this is going to go? <laughs> Armstrong, who likes the pampered life. <laughs> Going straight to wilderness, huh? Hmm. Hmm. Can we work from home? Is, is that an option? <laughs> Can I work from the Hudson River Valley? <laughs> but he and his servant did take up residence in a boarding house that was also occupied by the vice president and soon-to-be president, Thomas Jefferson, as well as other prominent Democratic-Republican leaders. So this gave him a good chance to kind of hobnob with some of, the, some of the leaders. 
Though General Gates had recommended Armstrong to Jefferson for the position of Secretary of War in his cabinet, Jefferson ultimately opted for Henry Dearborn, as we learned about in his episode. So even at this early stage, he's already being talked about as Secretary of War. But it's going to take a bit. (laughs) He hasn't done anything. (laughs) I mean, he's moved to... He's moved through a few houses, so <laughs> he like, stayed in a barn once. <laughs> he's gotten sick a couple times. <laughs> I mean, he wrote letters against the American Congress. <laughs> what? That's not enough. <laughs> I, hey, they don't know that yet. Okay. <laughs> Unbelievable. They're thinking of him. <laughs> But look who his dad was, right? <laughs> yeah. My goodness. My dad was friends with George Washington. <laughs> Have I mentioned that in the last five minutes? Who I kind of tried to raise a coup against, but <laughs> never mind that. Okay. We're just putting that down. I just. Yeah. But whether it was because he was passed over or for some other reason, by late February 1801, Armstrong was writing about the president-elect Jefferson, quote, Vigor does not seem to be the character of the man himself, and his cabinet will not be much calculated to supply his defects. Ouch. Yeah. Wait, you just you said he was boarding with him, right? Like he was in the same boarding house? Yeah. Imagine that. You're like really like writing about this dude then, oh, hey dude, what's going on? You get past the potatoes? Uh like <laughs> Just ignore this letter that I'm writing. He's like, anyone read the newspaper today? (laughs) You know he picked the world's, like, easiest, worst Roman name. (laughs) Jefferson, there seems to be a letter under your your soup there. What does that say? (laughs) It says, uh, you suck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So he was bitter he didn't get picked for the cabinet. And he says, well, they're not going to hide all of Jefferson's flaws. So, like, yeah. it's doomed. Yeah. And, you know, he's not very vigorous, you know. You know, <laughs> this guy. This guy. So could you – this is where you cut in where you said that his own biographer called <laughs> right? him lazy. say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as for his work in the Senate, as noted by his biographer, Skeen, quote, he – i.e. Armstrong, did not enjoy the rigors of the legislative process. He did not participate in the debates, nor did he offer any recorded motions or resolutions. He was content to cast his votes, usually according to the dictates of party. (laughs) But this guy's not vigorous. (laughs) Professional dissenter. That's all this man is. The vocal minority in one person. Yeah. And indeed, when it came time for him to return for the next session of Congress in late 1801, Armstrong delayed, and he used his wife Alita's illness as an excuse. But then, when he was pressed by Democratic-Republican leaders from New York to make his way in order to ensure that the state's interest in the federal capital were attended to, Armstrong simply resigned his seat on February 5th, 1802. (laughs) DeWitt Clinton would be chosen to replace him in the Senate, and John Armstrong was again a private citizen. (sighs) I went once. Come on. (laughs) Is that not enough? (laughs) I went once. I did nothing. 
We really need you to do your job. That's it. I quit. It's unbearable. <laughs> so, yeah. So in the fall of 1801, Armstrong moved his family to the Livingston Estate, Claremont, and sold Mill Hill in 1802. After a year and a half, Armstrong rented a new estate in Kingston across the Hudson River, and the family moved there. Now, this was the time that the, his authorship of the Newburgh Addresses was made public. A mm. prominent Federalist in Kingston learned of this, and so he started spreading the word. It started getting in the papers. Armstrong's response? He had, quote, a corrected copy of the addresses published, taken directly from the original draft. And though Washington's letter to him from 1797 was not published, so that letter that Washington was like, you know, mm -hmm. I know you had good intentions. Mm -hmm. He didn't publish that letter, but, quote, it was displayed in the publisher's office and was authenticated by several gentlemen in the area familiar with Washington's handwriting. So the general public never got to see that response, but the publisher kept it in his office on display? So it was actually, yeah, so it was displayed in the publisher's office, but folks would come to the publisher's office oh. and would see the letter. It became like a, oh, well, everybody go and see this letter from Washington. And at this point, Washington had already yeah. passed away. So, but they verified, yes, this is Washington's letter. So it was in effect, well, I don't want to brag too much, but do you see this letter that George <laughs> right. Washington wrote me and said that I was really a good guy? Right. <laughs> that is such an odd response to me because like, everyone wants that relationship with Washington at this point. And the guy doesn't deny he gave the addresses. He even said he had the correct copy, but he doesn't yeah. publish Washington's response, basically clearing, not clearing him, but forgiving him for it. And he doesn't publish it. He doesn't publish it, but word is going to get around. And that's the thing. Like he wants this word to get around he wants as he's publishing, him, right? because initially they were saying, oh, well, this is included in the address. And he's like, no, that's wrong. I wrote it. I'm owning it. He was hmm. he was proud of the address. And so he has it published. And meanwhile, there's this word of mouth going around. And, oh, well, you know, it's really not that bad. George Washington said it was OK. Hmm. This this is one of the things that you just really get a sense of John Armstrong. I that is such an I still I can't get over that response. Like I. So he, he wants the intrigue of no, people knowing this letter exists that Washington forgave him, but he doesn't want to show everyone the letter that it like in because published in the newspaper. That that would be taking it too far. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah. I don't like him. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait. And you're saying he's, he's I was gonna say, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Now, this is the part of the episode where, like, the last 10 minutes, this would be, I would be us, like, his, uh, him falling from grace. Like, this is like the Pinkering episode, but on the nosedive near the end. <laughs> and you're saying he's still climaxing. He has not reached the level we're talking to him yet. He He's still climbing because, indeed, he would be returned to the U.S. Senate. He was appointed to the same seat that he had sat in before, DeWitt Clinton vacated it in November 1803. Mm. Armstrong was returned to that seat, but as noted by Skeen, quote, the appointment was probably a surprise to Armstrong because Governor George Clinton was not on friendly terms with the Livingstons. 
We really don't know what his thinking was with this decision, but Armstrong did accept the appointment, and he assumed his seat again on December 7th. But as you can imagine, not much had really changed in the nearly two years between his tenures in the Senate. And as Skeen notes, quote, Armstrong attended to his duties in the Senate regularly, but as before, he did not take an active part in the debates. He disliked the haggling and hair splitting that often went on in the Senate chamber. Now, he wouldn't remain in the Senate for long. Shock. Because the Jefferson administration aimed for him to fill a position that at that point was held by his brother-in-law. So Chancellor Robert R. Livingston had been serving as U.S. Minister to France for Jefferson's term to date, but by 1804, he was ready to return to the U.S. Thus, in May of that year, Jefferson appointed Armstrong as his successor. Mm. Skeen notes that, quote, despite his lack of diplomatic experience, Armstrong's knowledge of world affairs was extensive, and he was noted as a scholar, which to men such as Jefferson and Madison was a valuable asset. Armstrong was also a skillful writer, which was an important qualification for a diplomatic post. Finally, he was sufficiently wealthy to afford the expense of the mission, he was cultivated, and he was experienced enough politically to represent American interests adequately at the French court. How? (laughs) They just said he's not qualified for this job, but he has money. He has money, he's read a lot of books, and what else do you need? He knows politics. He eats a baguette every once in a while. <laughs> he he knew George Washington. Yeah, he knows he Jefferson. There's nobody else, okay? <laughs> There's nobody else. <laughs> now, at this point, his wife, Alita, had been suffering from what was described as, quote-unquote, a pulmonary complaint for the last few years. Armstrong did take some time to consider, and he actually thought that this may be helpful for her. He thought that the change of climate might improve her condition. Also, as the children were getting to the age where they had to think about their education, France would provide unique opportunities for an excellent education. So thus, at the end of June, Armstrong arrived in Washington, D.C. to confer with Jefferson and Madison. And on September 5th, 1804, the Armstrongs, along with their children, Alita's sister Joanna and her six-year-old nephew departed from New York bound for France. They arrived there in a little over a month later, and after a slight delay arrived in Paris, they arrived on October 29th, where they enjoyed a reunion with Chancellor Livingston. On November 3rd, 1804, John Armstrong was presented to French Foreign Minister Talleyrand, then on the 18th, was presented to French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte at the Tuileries. The Paris that the Armstrongs found upon their arrival was a city, quote, of approximately 550,000 and a circumference of about 11 miles. They had been in urban areas before, but this was a whole new scale for them. City living right there. That is city living. From a literal (laughs) barn to Paris. (laughs) To Paris. And this was Paris at the height of Napoleon's power. You know, the French Empire was the dominant force mm-hmm. in Western Europe. Now, this is one of those ironic moments. So, as they were hoping, Alita Armstrong's health did improve in Paris. But Skeen notes that, quote, her husband was the one who was chronically ill while they were there. 
He was afflicted by rheumatism, recurrent attacks of his old malarial fever, and an unusual amount of sickness arising from his weakened condition. This chronic ill health undoubtedly affected his personality and may account to some extent for his generally morose disposition. <laughs> so basically, he was sick and crabby. <laughs> when it said that it would change his disposition, I was like, well, it can't get worse. So, like, is he now pleasant? Like, <laughs> No, it gets worse. <laughs> oh, great. Are we sure he just didn't want to work and he just tried calling in sick? <laughs> right. Well, and, and he did. He did take on quite a bit of work in this ministry. They really weren't as active on the social scene because of his illness, but there were quite a few things that he did during this ministry, including he was, one of his first tasks was to shepherd through the conclusion of the work of the three-man American Board of Commissioners who had been appointed as stipulated in the Louisiana Purchase Treaty to, quote, satisfy claims of American citizens against France arising primarily from maritime violations. So we won't go too much into the details of this, but a letter that he wrote to the French finance minister about one of the claims somehow ended up getting printed in newspapers back in New York and caused an uproar among, quote, merchants and underwriters who felt that Armstrong wasn't satisfactorily representing their interest in the case. And while this may seem kind of minuscule to us, it was a big deal. By 1806, Armstrong's reputation was not doing so well in the nation's capital. And we know as such because that March, Jefferson nominated Armstrong, as well as U.S. Minister of Spain James Baldwin, to negotiate with Spanish diplomats in Paris about the prospect of purchasing Florida. Baldwin's nomination went through without a problem, but the Senate hesitated on Armstrong's nomination. Hmm. On March 17th, the confirmation vote was tied 15-15, and it was only by Vice President Clinton's tie-breaking vote that he was confirmed. So this, hmm. you know, these claims and folks saying he's not really representing our interests well, it's hurting him politically. Hmm. And so in late May, Armstrong completed a pamphlet defending his conduct, and in October it was published in Philadelphia. While this pamphlet did not completely restore his reputation, as Skeen noted, quote, it did add to his reputation as a caustic, polemic writer of the first rank, and the criticism ultimately faded. So they're like, well, we don't really agree with him, but he's a good writer. I was about to say, but he writes real good. <laughs> he, yeah. he, he, he knows how to do that writing thing. <laughs> I don't like what he says, but I love the way he says it. <laughs> And I'm sure he was very relieved in June 1807 when the work of the Claims Commission concluded. He was able to put that aside and think of other things, including, but not limited to, the Florida issue. So this stems from the Louisiana Purchase. So Jefferson and Secretary of State Madison, Monroe, others, they thought that at least West Florida was included in the Louisiana Purchase. Now, Spain controlled West Florida. France controlled Louisiana. Spain says, no, of course it's not included because France didn't have rights to negotiate away West Florida. France says, no, we don't own West Florida. That's not a part of the treaty. <laughs> but Jefferson and his folks are like, yeah, no, it is. 
It really is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really is. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just keep shaking your head yes so much, uh, hoping they change it to yes? Or like what? I, I hear you saying no, but it's really a yes, right? <laughs> but at the same time, even though they really weren't making any diplomatic headway in this, Jefferson also refused to even consider the idea of using military force to take West Florida. So because of this, France and Spain knew that there was no force behind any threats that American diplomats may make during the negotiations. And so they really weren't motivated to even really talk about it. You Mm -hmm. Americans keep on bringing it up. We've got other things that we can discuss. Right. (laughs) But they're adamant. They're like, okay, we need to do something. So on November 12th, 1805, Jefferson and his cabinet agreed to seek to purchase the Floridas for $5 million. And as we noted, Armstrong and Baldwin were the agents who were going to carry out these negotiations. By this time, Armstrong was already talking to a French agent who said that France would be willing to help to persuade Spain to come along if certain conditions were met, quote, and $10 million would be paid by the U.S. to Spain. Armstrong pushed back on some of this, and he was able to get that price down to $7 million, but he needed guidance from his government to negotiate further, because at this point, he hadn't heard that he was named as commissioner. Mm-hmm. So he is negotiating with, so he's negotiating with France for France to actually go negotiate with Spain with a $7, $7 million offer. Exactly. Okay. So he's doing this independently. Meanwhile, in Washington, they're saying, okay, well, we'll go ahead and pay for it, but we'll only pay $5 million. And so kind of crosses the ocean, both of these messages. And so cabinet, the cabinet learns about this $7 million offer. And they're like, eh, that's $2 million too much. We'll just stick with $5 million for this land that we already own, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> that is a good point. <laughs> but before you know, all of this could get back and forth. They could learn all this, what was going on. Baldwin showed up in Paris, and it created an odd situation because Baldwin was an American diplomat, just like Armstrong, and he had more official clout to negotiate with Spain. But Armstrong had already done all the legwork, and they were in Paris, so. There's already some tension between these two. Meanwhile, Armstrong writes to U.S. Minister to Britain, James Monroe, and he dismisses Baldwin as, quote-unquote, gullible. Indeed, unbeknownst to both Armstrong and Monroe, Baldwin was talking with a Spanish agent in France and was trying to edge the French out of the negotiations, which naturally the French would not take kindly to and would destroy all the work that Armstrong had done up to this point. Oh, man. (laughs) Now, you get the sense from Baldwin that he is rather a busybody because he even tried to insert himself into Monroe's negotiations with Britain Mm -hmm. for some reason. And he was like, maybe I should just go and talk with Napoleon myself, even though I'm the U.S. minister to Spain. Well, it's a natural leap. Of course. I mean, let me just, let me just, I'll I'll take on all of these diplomatic missions on my own. (laughs) He was finally convinced that all this was a bad idea and, oh, by the way, just back off. But this is creating a problem. Mm -hmm. 
Meanwhile, Armstrong was just sitting there. He hadn't heard back from his government. And the French were like, hey, we made this offer like eight months ago. What's going on? We're not going to wait around forever. But when the initial proposal had been put forward, the French Empire was in a need of income as the treasury was depleted. But by the point that Armstrong learned, oh, well, I do have $5 million to work with, the French at that point had been able to figure things out. They were like, you know what? Just forget this. We we don't need that money anymore. Mm. Meanwhile, they had also learned of Baldwin's talks with the Spanish agent trying to edge them out. And naturally, they were upset. Yep. So all of this is off the table. Hmm. And by October 10th, 1806, Armstrong wrote to Madison about, quote, the probable failure of the Joint Commission. Baldwin, meanwhile, wrote, and, and you just, you get the idea that these are diplomats just acting very petty towards one another. Because mm-hmm. Baldwin writes to President Jefferson about rumors that he had heard about Armstrong colluding with a Spanish agent to obtain a land grant from the Spanish government in Florida, which would personally benefit him as part of a joint venture company with American, French, and Spanish investors. Baldwin couldn't really produce any evidence of this, except for, I heard this from a guy, mm. but still he's reporting <laughs> this rumor to Jefferson trying to take down Armstrong. Hmm. They couldn't have took that serious. I heard from a guy who heard from a guy who heard from a guy's sister's dog's brother's cat. That, uh... <laughs> Through a translator. <laughs> Through a translator. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is just. So now they're just going after each other. They're just kind of like, uh, I don't like you. Well, I don't like you. Uh. Yeah. So, I guess. And this is like five minutes past when you probably talked about this point already. But why? Armstrong is talking to France when they've France has already admitted they have nothing to do with Florida, but yet Armstrong's like, "Hey, could you go talk to Spain and we'll give them seven million dollars?" Like, why does France care if they've already admitted <laughs> they had nothing to do with the purchase? Like, so I don't understand. Well, and and I don't want to go too much into the rabbit hole of what's going on with Spain at that time, but Napoleon's starting to increase his influence over Spain. He's it's starting to. He's really trying to make it into more of a puppet kingdom, mm-hmm. and ultimately he would capture the Spanish royal family and put his brother in charge of Spain. Oh, well, look, here's your new king, my brother. Mm-hmm. So this was around that time that he was starting to have that influence. So he kind of saw it as, well, we can force Spain into doing this, and we'll take some of the kickback mm-hmm. to fill our treasury. I guess it kind of makes France look bigger too like um, yeah we'll, we'll go talk to spain for you i can i can muscle them exactly yeah. spain will do whatever we say because hmm. i mean didn't you even say they're like yeah 10 million will do it yeah spain will cave just give me a give me the go ahead exactly exactly but at this point it's just everything's broken down the diplomats are going against one another <laughs> and Florida just remains an open issue. So nothing is accomplished here. Hmm. But meanwhile, as this war between Britain and France is going on year after year, both sides are starting to do what they can to hinder neutral trade with their opponent because that neutral trade was seen as benefiting the other side's war effort. And so the U.S. starts to get involved in that. 
On the French side, this meant the seizure of American vessels that were accused of trading with Britain. And so naturally, as the U.S. minister to France, John Armstrong would get involved in this. He would lodge protests with the French government. And this would become a big part of his time as U.S. minister in France. But again, the French government had no real motivation to really address American concerns because they're just like, look, the British are treating you just as bad. Mm-hmm. You get them to get better, we'll get better. If not, what you going to do? Mm-hmm. And as noted by Skeen, quote, Napoleon blatantly detained millions of dollars of American shipping as both a threat and an inducement for the Americans to declare war on England. But this was a non-starter. The U.S. did not want to go to war. Particularly, President Jefferson did not want to go to war. Mm-hmm. Again from Skeen, quote, Corrupt French agents condemned cargoes illegally, and American sailors were held virtual prisoners until the issue of condemnation or liberation was resolved. Armstrong was besieged with requests to do something to alleviate the plight of these unfortunate men, but there was little he could do except to ask in the name of humanity for better treatment or their release. So mm. it's just becoming this increasing, you know, he can't get any traction with Florida. He can't get the British to treat American shipping better. So mm-hmm. by late October 1808, Armstrong wrote to Madison that, quote, I do not longer see a public reason for keeping a minister here. Neither general law nor particular treaties have any obligation with France. If the president is of my opinion, he will recall me in the spring. Mm. So he's even so he's quitting without quitting, essentially. Yeah, so basically at that point, American diplomats had to receive permission from Washington mm-hmm. to actually say, I'm quitting, yeah. I'm leaving the country, mm-hmm. I'm gone. So he's got to wait for his orders for recall. But he's also, but he's not just saying recall him. He's saying like, it's useless. Nobody can do anything right now. So don't send, don't replace me. Just send me home. And Exactly. Huh. You know, at this point, he's saying there's just, there's nothing to be done, you know, but at the very least, just go ahead and recall. Yeah, get me. rid of me. Like, please. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to get out of here. I have my bags packed now. But he would use this time while he was waiting for his orders for recall to supply the government with as much information as he could, including reporting back the abysmal failure of the Embargo Act in altering either British or French foreign policy. And on January 16th, 1809, he recommended its repeal. By spring 1809, Armstrong was recommending war against both Britain and France, as he felt, quote, a war of both will put into motion every drop of American blood and will be followed by many other useful consequences. I, Eric's look <laughs> right now of just... <laughs> So, all right, let me wrap my head around that. But let's let's th- unpack that a bit. So, fr- me being in France is useless. Therefore, France and the U.S. Uh, France and uh, Great Britain need to fight again. Well, and we need to fight against them. We need to declare war against both of them. So, <laughs> I want to leave at the same time, but I want these to, like. And he put this in writing. Yes, 
to be shipped across the the ocean. What could possibly go wrong if that gets found out? Just well, an American and- diplomat, just. <laughs> Talking Declare about war against both of these countries. <laughs> the two major powers in Europe. Yeah, let's let's just go to war with both of them. Huh. Needless to say, the you know, by this point, Madison had taken over as president, and he was like, Yeah, I'm just not gonna respond to this. <laughs> <laughs> You're wanting us to do what? Can somebody check on Armstrong? I think something's wrong there. <laughs> Can we get the authenticity of this checked? Is this really from us? Well, and and it's interesting because there's this interesting like back and forth. Like Armstrong's starting to get word that the French may be wanting to come to the negotiating table. But then they turn around and start impounding more American ships and you also have, and um, we talk more about this in the narrative series, but the Cador letter. So the French foreign minister writing, we may be willing to go ahead and rescind some of these decrees that are against American shipping if you impose non-importation against Britain. Armstrong is just, he's like, I don't, I just don't trust any of the French anymore. I'm, I'm just, just don't trust them. It's, I'm hearing good things, but this just, I'm really not sure that they're really wanting to do anything. Interesting. Yeah. It's just, it's a weird time in politics. Like nobody is really trusting anybody and what anybody's saying. Therefore, we must fight. (laughs) Therefore, we must fight against everybody. What a terrible diplomat. (laughs) (laughs) And, Thankfully for everybody, this was the end of his diplomatic career. On on September 15th, 1810, John Armstrong and his family departed from Paris. And 10 days later, they were in Bordeaux waiting for a ship to bring them back to the U.S. Again from Skeen, quote, Armstrong's career in France thus ended the way it began. He had been almost continuously engaged in controversy. Armstrong left France satisfied that he had performed his duties to the best of his abilities. Of course. <laughs> of course. Does no wrong, that man. Nothing I did nothing wrong. It's just the French and Baldwin, and let me find some other folks to blame. So he returns home, he arrives in New York City, he's met with this great reception, and then he goes back to Washington, DC, he reports out, and then he returns to New York. Upon his return, Armstrong was talked about as a possible vice presidential candidate. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> in the upcoming 1812 election, <laughs> as well as a possible contender in the Pennsylvania gubernatorial race. I just, what were the, <laughs> I, How? List a resume, people. <laughs> so. The Madison administration was not really keen on this, and Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, in particular, was no fan of Armstrong. He even warned that this newfound talk of Armstrong may end up with folks talking about Armstrong running for president in 1812. And so they opted not to do this. They were like, let's let's find somebody else to run with Madison. And Armstrong was just able to go back 
So in the fall of 1811, he bought a farm along the Hudson River, composed of around 728 acres, and he made plans to, surprise, surprise, build a new mansion on the farm. Another house. Was he interested then? Was he interested at all when they like uh, were thinking of him as the possible vice? But what like what was his uh, what was the going on in his mind? So it was interesting at this point. Presidential or even vice presidential candidates were not supposed to say, "Oh, well, I really want to be president or vice president," but they could also say, "I really don't want to be considered for president or vice president." And he didn't do that. Okay. Mm. So he didn't necessarily encourage it, but he did absolutely nothing to discourage it. Right. And so at this point, you know, we're starting to prepare for war. This is getting into 1812. (laughs) That Armstrong has been kind of like playing around, like he's kind of not sowed the seeds, but he's not been stopping any of this talk either. In France, where it would have been helpful. Exactly. So we're on that march to war. And meanwhile, the Armstrong family is getting involved in this as well, including Armstrong's son, Henry. He received a commission as a captain. And as for Armstrong, Secretary of War William Eustace reached out to Armstrong about the possibility of him rejoining the army. Armstrong may have known, quote, that he would accept nothing less than a separate command. It was decided that Armstrong would receive an appointment as a brigadier general in the U.S. Army and would be, quote, appointed to command the defenses of the Port of New York and her dependencies. That's a major port. That is a major port. That he is not qualified. (laughs) He didn't do anything in the Revolutionary War. (laughs) Like he was there. But still, they're like, this is the guy. I have never seen somebody fall into so much success <laughs> by doing nothing in my life. <laughs> oh, just wait. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, you know, on July 20th, he received his official orders. But shortly after beginning his service, under a pseudonym, he published a 71-page book entitled Hints to Young Generals, which, quote, compressed a great deal of useful information on strategy and tactics with rules and principles, both for offensive and defensive operations. So he's saying, I am an authority on this. (laughs) Didn't Pinkering did this Pinkering did the same thing uh, earlier in the war. He also had his training manual and boy, the comparisons are unbelievable. (laughs) And the thing was like at this point, so he is a commissioned military officer, but he would not confine himself to military matters because despite the nation being at war, DeWitt Clinton of New York was leading an anti-administration faction of Democratic Republicans to oppose a second term for Madison, and Armstrong contributed to a pamphlet entitled The Coalition, which attacked Clinton, asserting that he was, quote, surrounded by sycophants and tools. So... It's interesting because, you know, here we have Armstrong, who has been this opponent of kind of the establishment, but then kind of working with the establishment. And now he's back to, well, I'm going to support Madison, the establishment. And meanwhile, Madison was working to secure reelection. He had to start thinking about new leadership, both in his administration and in the military. 
because the three-pronged assault on Canada that fall had failed, and Secretary of War William Eustis and General Henry Dearborn had taken the brunt of the blame for its failure. Armstrong was discussed as a replacement for either, but though Armstrong had come out in support of Madison in the election, his, quote, background of political enmity against the Virginians and his well-known ill-tempered disposition did not appear at first to favor his selection. And indeed, when Eustis resigned, Madison first offered the position at the War Department to Senator William Crawford, Democratic-Republican from Georgia. Then when he turned it down, he actually offered it to Henry Dearborn, former Secretary of War and embattled general. He refused. So then Secretary of State James Monroe temporarily accepted the appointment. So he was running the State Department as well as the War Department, but told Madison he really didn't want to take up the position as Secretary of War permanently. He was angling for a, an actual field command. So he's like, I don't really want to be tied into this bureaucratic mess. New York Governor Daniel Tompkins was also considered, but Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin objected to Tompkins. And he actually, quote, offered to take the post himself rather than to give it to Tompkins. So finally... <laughs> there was no one else left to consider. Armstrong, at least, did have that military background. His status as a New Yorker, quote, would help secure the support of that important state. And while neither was thrilled with the choice, both Monroe and Gallatin, the president's two key advisors, said they could work with Armstrong. So... What a ringing endorsement. <laughs> I know. I, I guess if we've got to deal with this guy. Oh my God. He was the fifth option? Fifth option. John, let me tell you. You were the first choice. <laughs> we didn't come to anyone else. I promise you that, sir. <laughs> Never mind the stack of, of uh, rejection letters we just got. Just ignore all the applications. All yeah. <laughs> So on January 13th, 1813, President Madison sent his nomination of Armstrong as Secretary of War to the Senate. And after some of his controversies of his tenure as Minister to France, as well as his authorship of the Newburgh Address were brought up in debate, Armstrong was confirmed by the Senate by a narrow margin of 18 to 15. <laughs> Close. Can you imagine if they would have rejected him? Like, who was the sixth option if this guy? <laughs> I guess Madison probably gave them a hint. Hey, I don't have anybody else <laughs> <Right>. left. <laughs> does, any, does anybody here want to be Secretary of War? Literally no? anyone. Okay. <laughs> then we'll you better vote guy. yes. Yeah, then you better vote. That custodian <laughs> that when he showed up to the Congress... Uh, way back at the start of the episode, he is still there, and he was the sixth option. No, he he had his chin on the chin on the the handle. You know, I knew he could do it. I knew it. <laughs> I knew he could get there. As this was such a long episode, and with the input of listeners, I've decided to split the John Armstrong episode into two. Thus, I hope you'll join us for the next episode when we explore the cabinet career and the later days of the life of John Armstrong before we get to rating his overall career and legacy. Thanks so much to Eric and Matt of the Ranking 76 podcast for joining me for this Seat at the Table episode. And be sure to check out their podcast at 
ranking76.wordpress.com, or you can search for Ranking76 wherever you get your podcast. I'll have a link to their website as well as much more on my website at Presidency's Podcast. That's all one word, dot com. There, you can also find the many ways that you can help support the Presidency's Podcast, including leaving a rating and review, which helps to get the word out there about the podcast. You can also help to fulfill some of my book requests to help support the research efforts of this podcast. Or you can join up as a patron of the podcast at patreon.com slash presidencies. Patrons get to hear more about what's happening behind the scenes, as well as get some merchandise based on the contribution level, and my top patrons get to talk with me on a regular monthly call. Whether you're a patron or not, I always love connecting with listeners, so please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. If you don't follow me on social media already, I'm available at Mastodon, Post, Blue Sky, and Facebook as Presidencies, on the formerly known as Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram and threads as Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.